0: Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody.
1: This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for March 7th through 13th, 2022. This is covering Genesis chapters 37 through 41. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. The Scriptures.
0: I can't wait to read you.
1: There are some neat stories today. And now let's consult the Scripturmatic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 28 minutes, 35 seconds.
0: And what would that be daily? 4 minutes, 5 seconds. So easy to do. Here we've got time codes if you want to go chapter by chapter. And we've got a little note here at the beginning You may have noticed that for the Come, Follow Me study, we're skipping Genesis 34, 35, and 36. This is our first time skipping chapters, but it won't be our last.
1: That's right. For those of you who came into this year thinking, yeah, I'm going to read the whole Old Testament this year. Well, if you follow the Come, Follow Me plan, that's actually not the case. To fit into this year of study and to focus on things of particular doctrinal importance, the Come Follow Me plan actually leaves out 58% of the Old Testament, over half. Now, granted, some of what's left out is repetitive, some of it is just too much material. You could probably spend a whole year on the Psalms alone, for example, and some of it is of questionable doctrinal value. I'm looking at you, Song of Solomon. <laughs> Now, we don't want to discourage anyone from reading the entire Old Testament. In fact, we recommend it. Oh, yes. If you read 10 minutes every day in the Old Testament, you'll finish it in a year. There's nothing saying that you have to strictly follow the Come Follow Me plan. But that's the plan that we've built the show around. So for this year's show, there will be chapters and sometimes even whole books skipped. In fact, if you want to read chapters 34 through 36 in addition to the chapters for this week, add another 16 minutes and 3 seconds to your weekly reading time for a total of 44 minutes 38 seconds. And what would that be daily? That would be another 2 minutes and 17 seconds each day for a total of 6 minutes, 22 seconds.
0: Come on, we could do it. (laughs) We would like to summarize, though, what's happening in these chapters before we start in chapter 37. For necessity, we need to cover it quickly. But the story of Dinah and Shechem in Genesis 34 offers a great opportunity to go into some significant themes in the Old Testament. Often we read a story quickly and we think it is about something that it's not actually about, and I think this is such a story. If you're interested in further explanation, I have summarized some of the key aspects from a great book called Reading the Women of the Bible. It's from Professor Tikva Freimer-Kensky. She was a respected Jewish scholar, I say was because she passed away, and I've loved her fresh take on many Old Testament stories. There's just too much to explore in the format of this show, so I've written up a summarized version of her insights that you can link in the description. If you like what you're reading, you might really enjoy the book.
1: We will also be using some additional resources outside the Bible to help paint a picture of the many traditions surrounding these stories that have touched lives for thousands of years, so
0: look for that later in the show. Right. But for now, let's start our summary of chapter 34 in Genesis. So last week in chapter 33, Jacob bought a portion of land from Hamor, the father of Shechem, in verse 19 of chapter 33. In chapter 34, Dinah, Jacob and Leah's daughter, goes out on her own and has an intimate encounter with Prince Shechem, which leads him wanting to marry her. Traditionally, this event is interpreted as a rape or an assault, but the story itself is vague on the matter. There's more about this in the extra reading if you're interested. Remember, I've linked it in the description. But whether it was consensual or not, it was not appropriate, leading to the term defile used in verse 5. Either way, this quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland from the General Conference in April of 2010, I think is very apropos to the story. He says, quote, Love makes us instinctively reach out to God and other people. Lust, on the other hand, is anything but godly, and celebrates self indulgence. Love comes with open hands and open heart. Lust comes with only an open appetite. Close quote. This incident leads to the wholesale slaughter of the men of the city of Shechem instigated by Levi and Simeon, two of Dinah's older brothers. Jacob was greatly distressed by what Levi and Simeon had done and worried that surrounding tribes would gather together to destroy his household. This is part of a series of stories that seems to be making the case to the readers that the sons of Leah, of which Simeon and Levi are two, should not be the birthright sons. Coming up, we'll see moral problems with Reuben, the oldest, and Judah as well. In chapter
1: 35, Jacob is commanded by the Lord to return to Bethel. Remember, that's house of God. Jacob commanded his people to purify themselves, and he built an altar to the Lord there. And again, the Lord appeared to him. That's mentioned in verse 9. God announces himself as God Almighty in verse 11. Or as the footnote points out, the name in Hebrew is El Shaddai. God reaffirmed his covenant with Jacob, and after God left, Jacob set up a pillar in that place to memorialize the event. On the way back from his holy experience in Bethel, tragedy struck. Rachel died, bringing Jacob's 12th son into the world. His name was Benjamin. Then, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, slept with Bilhah, his father's third wife, and formerly Rachel's handmaid. Finally, his father Isaac died. He would be buried by both Jacob and Esau.
0: Wow. Going on in chapter 36, it gives us the descendants of Esau, who was the son of Isaac and brother to Jacob. And they're all listed in this chapter.
1: And that brings us to chapter 37 and the beginning of today's reading. So let's start in verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Now, in the brother's defense, notice in verse 2, essentially it describes Joseph as a bit of a snitch. The phrase, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. In other words, he told his father all the bad things that his brothers were doing when they were slacking off or goofing around or doing whatever.
0: Yeah, but don't you find it funny that people would get all irate about someone telling on them rather than feeling bad that they had been doing bad things? Fair enough.
1: And there's also kind of an interesting footnote in verse 3. The Septuagint word indicates many colors, and remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament started three centuries before Christ. But the Hebrew term may indicate simply a long coat With sleeves. Either way,
0: it seemed clear that the coat was very special, and that his brothers were jealous. Yeah, that is the key. So, in verse 5, it says And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Hear, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf, And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying.
1: Now that word obeisance, it means to bow down or act reverently towards something or someone. So that's what Joseph is dreaming about And I would like to remind you, one of the reasons his brothers are upset is that they are all probably significantly older than he is. He is not the youngest brother, but he is very young. So in the next few verses, 12 to 14, Jacob asks Joseph to go to Shechem and check on the welfare of the flocks and his brothers.
0: Now, this is kind of interesting, I think, in verses 15 through 17, they include an event that we often skip right over. And yet, it includes an interaction with one of the most important people in the story of Joseph. And some have even called the most important person in the Bible. He has no name given and is just known as a certain man. Let's take a look at the verses and see if you can see why he's so important. In verse 15, And a certain man found him, And behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Now, first of all, what a strange little account to give. Why doesn't the Bible just say that he went to Shechem, they weren't there, and he found them in Dothan? It gives us this little piece of information with someone who has no identity and yet by helping Joseph know where his brothers have gone, because he doesn't, he's wandering in the field, by helping him know, it moves the story forward. And why is that so important? Well, as we'll see, God is about to do an incredibly great work that will change the whole course of Israel. As a nation and affect its entire story throughout the Bible. But in order for that to happen, Joseph needs to get to Dothan. And here we find just some random person. Now, for the biblical writers, this kind of a person represents the presence of God in the story. God is working through this person to help Joseph get to where he needs to get. And what's the significance of this person? Probably none at all. And yet, what a lesson for us. God can do incredible things through us that can help change the course of his work with just one little moment if we're willing to be where he wants us to be and do something even very simple that he wants us to do. I've had people like that that have helped change the course of my life, and I know my wife has as well. It might
1: be interesting as we study through the Old Testament and the New Testament to keep your eye out for a certain man. Right. Now, before we go further in this story, there was a quote in the Come Follow Me manual that I wanted to include. This is from then-President Dieter F. Uchtdorf from the October 2017 General Conference. He reminds us, quote, Following the Savior will not remove all of your trials. However, it will remove the barriers between you and the help your Heavenly Father wants to give you. God will be with you, end quote.
0: That is so great. And let's
1: see how that plays out in this story.
0: Yeah, yeah, great quote. So in Genesis thirty-seven eighteen through 24, when the brothers saw Joseph coming, they wanted to kill him and throw him into a pit. But Reuben, the oldest, sought to save Joseph by suggesting that they throw him in a pit, but not slay him, figuring that he could come back and rescue Joseph later. When Joseph comes, they carry out their plan, stripping him of his coat and throwing him in a pit. And then, job done, they sit down to a nice lunch.
1: Oh, that sounds lovely. (laughs) Verse 25 And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content.
0: He seems to really care there, doesn't he?
1: Yes, because he is his brother and is worth so much more if we sell him rather than let him die. (laughs) Verse 28, Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, And they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, notice the various groups of people, the various ites that we are dealing with. These are also descendants of Abraham. Midianites would be children of Midian, son of Abraham and Keturah. And the Ishmaelites, of course, would be descendants of Ishmael, son of Abraham and Hagar.
0: Yeah, and notice the various interactions between the Midianites and the Ishmaelites. When Joseph is finally brought to Egypt, he is sold by the Medanites, different people from the Midianites. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 2, it talks about that genealogy. Though Medan was also a son of Abraham and Keturah. Most all Bibles correct the Medonites to Midianites, to keep the story consistent. But the Hebrew clearly states Medonites in verse 36. Then when the story picks up again in Genesis 39:1, we read that it is the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. Later in the narrative, the confusion is reflected by two different statements from Joseph. In Genesis 40, verse 15, he says, I was stolen away or kidnapped out of the land of the Hebrews. But in Genesis 45, 4, he says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, many scholars believe that all this confusion is because different Jewish traditions surrounding this account were meshed together, and this is what accounts for the inconsistencies. I am in the camp with the famous Jewish scholar, Gary Rendsburg. He says this, I prefer a literary explanation, however. The confusion reflects the confusion in Joseph's mind. The reader experiences the events as Joseph experienced them. Stuck at the bottom of a pit, Joseph is able to hear only muffled sounds and dialogue from above. He is pulled out and transported to Egypt, but because he himself is unsure about the chain of events, the narration presents the tale in confused terms. Confused language also appears in Genesis 37:30, 30, where Reuben, upon discovering that the pit is empty, with Joseph not in sight, states in Hebrew, and I, where am I to come? This confused language reflects the confusion of Reuben's mind, which is unable to produce clear syntax. This represents yet another literary device in the arsenal of the ancient Israelite writers.
1: And there's one more note on verse 28. Notice that Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 5, this would later be established as the set price for a slave between the age of 5 and 20. Exodus 21, verse 32 establishes the price of an adult slave at 30 pieces of silver. Does that amount sound familiar? Interesting. So, just as Jesus was sold or betrayed for the price of a slave, Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, so too was Joseph. This will not be the only interesting parallel between Joseph's life and the Savior's. So, in the last few verses, starting in verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit, remember he was planning to rescue Joseph, and found that Joseph was gone, he rent or tore his clothes. Despite the grief Reuben felt, however, he and his brothers dipped Joseph's coat in the blood of a goat and gave it to their father. Jacob assumed that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. He mourned deeply, putting on sackcloth, which was clothing worn in times of sorrow. You'll see sackcloth appear several times in the Old Testament and the New. Once in Egypt, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers,
0: So this brings us to Genesis chapter 38. Now chapters 38 and 39 show an interesting contrast between the two brothers, Judah on the one hand and Joseph on the other. Judah resented Joseph and influenced the others to sell him as a slave. Joseph, the one abused and sold, had every reason to be resentful and angry at his brothers and God. Let's compare the two and see what we can learn from them. Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 11, Judah married a Canaanite woman, a daughter of Shua, someone outside the faith. Judah and his wife had three sons together, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest son, Ur, married a woman named Tamar, but he died before they had children. Specifically, it says that he was slain by the Lord due to his wickedness in verse 7. According to the customary law at the time, a widow who had no children had claim on her husband's next oldest brother or his closest living male relative. This man, if asked by the widow, was obliged to marry her and raise up seed or produce children on behalf of the deceased brother. This practice is known as a leveret marriage. To learn more about that, check out Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 and in your Bible Dictionary. If you're curious, lever is the Latin word for brother-in-law. So, Onan, Ur's younger brother, married Tamar, but refused to give her children, instead spilling it, can you hear the air quotes, it or his reproductive contribution. See, the Old Testament's not bashful about anything. So, he spilled it on the ground in verse 9. This displeased the Lord who slew him as well. Judah, instead of caring for Tamar, sent her away to live as a widow in her father's house, promising that Shelah, his third son, could be her husband when he was grown. However, when Shelah was old enough, Judah did not keep his promise to Tamar. Tamar then resorted to deception in order to bear children by Judah, who had the responsibility to provide a husband and children for her.
1: So let's go to chapter 38, verse 13. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. From here on in the story, Tamar will just be referred to with pronouns. This is a literary tool to put the reader in the point of view of Judah, Who does not recognize her as Tamar, his daughter in law. So in verse 14, And she put her widow's garment off from her, and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, and thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave
0: it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. It's interesting to point out here that there's a lot of assumption going on. You know, when they presented the torn coat of Joseph to the father, they never said, look at the coat, he's been killed. They just let him, Jacob, fill in the gaps. Here, in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot. But notice that she never takes payment, and she never claims to be. So going on in verses 19 through 23, Judah sent his friend with a kid, a young goat, to pay the harlot and retrieve his signet, bracelets, and staff. But his friend could not find her. See again, no payment. He still had no idea that the woman he believed was a harlot was actually his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So let's look at verse 24. And it came to pass about three months later, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are am I with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and bracelets and staff." And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because I gave her not to Shelah, my son. And he knew her again, no more. Now, remember that he knew her is a euphemism for sexual relations. Yeah, Judah, class act.
1: (laughs) So let's summarize a couple of characteristics of Judah as described here. Number one, he did not keep his oath to Tamar to fulfill his responsibilities. Number two, immediately gave in to temptation when it presented itself in the form of prostitution. Three, he was self-righteous when judging another's apparent shortcomings. So he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant by whoredom and he's ready to execute her. Number four, he's humiliated when his sin was exposed. Now, it may seem strange to have this story interrupting the Joseph story, but there is a theme in chapter 38 that is a continuation from chapter
0: 37, deception. Right. Note how Joseph's brothers ask their father to recognize the evidence of the bloodied tunic in chapter 37, verse 32, and how Tamar asks Judah to recognize the evidence of his three personal items in chapter 38, verse 26, using the same wording. So let's look at the one with Joseph's coat in chapter 37, verse 32. It says, know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And here's what Tamar says in chapter 38, verse 26. Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet, And bracelets and staff. So the brothers deceived Jacob into believing that his beloved son Joseph had been killed by a lion. The ringleader among Jacob's sons in the deception of their father was Judah. Thus it is fitting that he in turn is deceived by Tamar in chapter 38. And once more the props are the goat, which he promised to deliver, or in Joseph's case, the blood of the goat, and the clothing. The veil here is used by Tamar in place of the widow's garb that she should have been wearing. The series of deceptions ends here, however, given that Judah admits, quote, she hath been more righteous than I, quote from verse 26. This is yet one more indication of Tamar's moral superiority, which should serve as a model to all of Israel. Let me quote again from Professor Gary A. Rensberg from his course on the book of Genesis. He says, once more, it is the low-ranking woman in the story who serves as the heroine. Note that Tamar is a non-Israelite who plays the role of the prostitute, that is, a woman on the margins of society, one of the truly lowly. Yet she is the one who takes the moral high ground. Because she has been wronged by Judah. She represents Israel, which lacks the might of other nations, but can gain and prosper by using both its wit, in a good sense, and morality, which it should possess in large supply. Close quote. It may be difficult to understand Tamar as morally superior since she became pregnant by deceit, but she took what she had a right to even if the dishonest judah was unwilling to give it freely look at how the biblical authors saw her not only does judah praise her but she is used as a praise in ruth chapter 4 verse 12
1: which is kind of interesting because if you'll remember judah's name means praise
0: <laughs> right so when the people are blessing ruth another outsider and boaz they say And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed of which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. It is Tamar's son, not Judah's remaining son, Shelah, through whom the lineage of Judah moves forward. We see this again when the lineage celebrating the birth of Jesus is given in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3, Tamar and her son are the lineage that will give Israel, King David, and his dynasty, and eventually Jesus Christ. God allowed Tamar to devise a plan to restore her dignity. Remember that barrenness was considered a curse and a punishment. This was a plan to have a family, one who would bless the world, no less, and to get justice following Judah's refusal to fulfill his obligations. She is an unlikely hero, But there will be others like her, outsiders, who teach Israel what it means to truly seek for promised blessings, rather than consider themselves a privileged people because of their bloodline or history. We may not understand her particular situation like the ancient people did, but we can see that God blessed her because she was more righteous than those who should have known better. So that brings us to chapter 39. We're introduced again to Potiphar. So who was he? In Genesis 37, 36, and Genesis 39:1, it calls him an officer of pharaohs and captain of the guard. The word for officer is saris. Professor Tikva Frymer-Kensky tells us that saris came to mean officer, but originally meant eunuch. So it could be either one, but if it meant eunuch, that might help explain his wife's behavior coming up in this chapter.
1: The Institute Manual also adds this insight. The Hebrew phrase that is translated as captain of the guards literally means chief of the butchers or slaughterers. From this meaning, some scholars have thought that he was the chief cook or steward in the house of the pharaoh. But other scholars believe that butcher or slaughterer is used in the same sense of executioner. And thus, Potiphar was the commanding officer of the royal bodyguard who executed the capital sentences ordered by the king. Either way, Potiphar was an important man, but the latter position especially would give him great power and status in Egypt. So let's look at chapter 39, starting in verse 2. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored.
0: Remember that Joseph's mother, Rachel, was described this way, too. In Genesis 29:17, it says that Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. You might remember that well-favored meant that she had a great figure. Modern translations clarify the description of Joseph in the same way from Genesis 39.6. For example, the NIV says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation, says, And Joseph was handsome in form and exceedingly beautiful in countenance. In Genesis, physical beauty was often used as a literary device to describe a person's inward righteousness. So... Joseph is a handsome guy, and he's on top of everything, and all is going so well. What could possibly go wrong?
1: Let's look at that in verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Okay, so Potiphar's wife and Joseph were going to get together and... Tell false stories about Potiphar, right? They'll (laughs) lie about him together,
0: right? (laughs) You know, what's hilarious about this is we've seen multiple euphemisms for sexual relations. You know, someone knows his wife or come in unto me, we saw earlier. But there's no euphemism with Potiphar's wife. You know, it's just as bold as could be. So we should point out that stories of a sexual nature abound in the Old Testament, It was a normal part of life, along with birth and death. People lived together in tents. How much privacy do you think there was? Even though some of these stories may be uncomfortable for some of us today, God is aware of all aspects of our lives, and he cares about every one of them.
1: And let's get back to the story, verse 8. But he, referring to Joseph, he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master watteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. A quick note, Joseph Smith translation on 8b. Watteth not means knoweth not, which is in harmony with the actual word. To wot is an old English word that means to know. The NIV Bible gives us this translation. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. Going back to verse 9, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God?
0: Oh, now there's a very interesting statement right there. There are other stories in the ancient world that use the motif of the young man seduced by another's wife who refuses on moral grounds, only then to be accused of rape. The Egyptian tale of two brothers and Homer's Iliad are two examples. In both cases, the young man declares that giving into seduction would be morally wrong. But only in Joseph's story does he identify that the action... Would be a sin against God. This marks a major feature of Israelite life and society, the manner in which religion and morality were interconnected. It might seem strange to us that this is innovative, but anciently the gods of other nations didn't demand moral behavior from the people. Society did, but not the gods. The God of Israel is intimately connected to the moral behavior of his people. And we know that because we know that God wants us to become something. And that wasn't the case with the other nations' gods. Consider what a difference it makes in our ability to resist temptation when we know that it is God who we would offend with our behavior, not parents or society or bishop, etc., although they might, but our focus is on God. This is important because, like with us, this temptation of Joseph's wasn't a one-time thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at verse 10. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. So let's talk about that word that is translated as fled. This is the Hebrew word vallenos, to flee. In Psalm 114, the first three verses, we are told, when Israel went out of Egypt, The house of Jacob from a people of a strange language. Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. That's that same word again, Vallenos. Comparing that concept to the miracle of the Red Sea and its parting, we can visualize a miracle as something like the water of the Red Sea going against its own nature. It is not the nature of the sea to do that. So when it parted, it was a miracle. It could be argued that it is not in Joseph's nature as a mortal man to resist the insistent invitation for sex. So when he acted, fled like the Red Sea, he acted against his nature. That is a miracle. It only happens with the power of God. So do you want to see a miracle? Access divine power to act against your nature. That is awesome.
0: So now having been refused, let's examine Potiphar's wife's accusations, starting in verse 13. And it came to pass that when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he, speaking of Potiphar, hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. Notice how she sculpts the narrative to suit her audience, so they will sympathize with her?
1: Yeah, even though it would seem to be her doing to make sure the house was empty and no one would be around
0: to hear her. (laughs) Yes, but notice how she sculpts that. See, he, Potiphar, the outsider... Our Lord and master hath brought this Hebrew person in to mock us. Now, he's a slave, but she doesn't want her servants to have any kind of solidarity with him. So she doesn't call him a slave or servant. It's just a Hebrew guy to mock us. This is us. It's all about us. Anyways, and now look how she changes it in verse 17 for her husband. And she spake unto him, this is Potiphar, according to these words, saying the Hebrew servant, again, now he's a slave, which thou hast brought unto us, came in unto me to mock me. He's a servant. In other words, we are up here. And now this guy down here is mocking me. Our slave is mocking your wife. In verse 18. And it came to pass that as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. In verse 19, it says, And it came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison.
1: So before you judge this situation too quickly, think about this. How was Joseph not summarily put to death? Why was Potiphar's wrath kindled? Was it because he believed Joseph had attacked his wife or because his wife had made these accusations publicly, he was going to have to send Joseph away? Joseph, the best servant he ever had in whom he trusted completely. To me, Joseph keeping his head could only happen if Potiphar knew that Joseph was not guilty. Potiphar knows his wife Is this really the first time this has happened? Remember, too, the ethics of Egypt that we talked about with Abraham and Sarah. Murder? Not so bad. Taking someone else's wife? That's the worst of the worst.
0: Yeah. And he's a slave. So why he's not killed? Again, the only reason I can think is that he believes Joseph. We thought you might enjoy hearing some additional details from this story from its retelling in the Quran the scriptural book of Islam. Many of you might be surprised I suggest this, but remember that Islam is one of the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They consider Abraham's son Ishmael the birthright son and claim connection with his descendants. There are many versions of these early biblical stories within Judaism, and the version in the Quran, written about AD 600, is interesting to consider.
1: Now if this slight detour from the Bible makes you uncomfortable, you may be interested to study various statements by Latter-day prophets about the value of other religions in our understanding of truth. We'll link an article in the description if you would like to learn more. For now, let's review a portion of a statement from the First Presidency dated February 15, 1978, which affirms, among other things, that, quote, "the great religious leaders of the world such as Muhammad Confucius and the Reformers, as well as philosophers including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. Quote. This statement is more recently referenced in an April 2006 general conference talk given by President James E. Faust entitled The Restoration
0: of All Things. Right. And there's more quotes along those lines, but again, we'll reference that article that you can read. It'll be linked in the description. So the Quran's account emphasizes that Joseph is shockingly handsome. This is very common in early Jewish and Christian writings as well. After Potiphar's wife attacks Joseph and flees, she grabs his shirt and rips it. As Joseph opens the door to leave, there is Potiphar. His wife tells him Joseph attacked her, but Joseph tells him it was his wife who seduced him. Potiphar determines the truth by looking at where the shirt was torn. If from the front, then Joseph must have attacked her, but it was ripped from the back, which means Joseph was telling the truth. Potiphar admonishes his wife. Now, Potiphar's wife is humiliated. The gossip from the women was all over the town about how she had seduced a slave servant and was rejected so she invited the women to her home for a banquet, providing them with fruit and little paring knives. While they were each peeling the fruit, she called Joseph in, and they all marveled at him, thinking him so beautiful he must be an angel. They also cut their hands because they couldn't take their eyes off of him. Potiphar's wife essentially says, see, I told you, but she would not stop her scheming to get Joseph. So he prays that the Lord would send him to prison so that he would not fall into temptation. And so the Lord arranges that. And that's from the Quran chapter 12. We just thought you might enjoy hearing a different tradition's perspective on the story.
1: That is interesting. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. Or as the Joseph Smith translation tells us, he was the overseer of it. Verse 23. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made to prosper." I love that. So isn't it interesting that whenever Joseph is given responsibility for something, people trust him implicitly. They just leave it into his hands and totally trust (laughs) that he will take care of it and be fine. And he does. Yep. Before we go on, just examine the difference between Judah's story in chapter 38 and Joseph's story here in chapter 39. Notice the problems and sin that resulted from Judah's deceit and lack of self-control. In contrast, Joseph is the paragon of faithfulness, integrity, honesty, and temperance. And even though bad things keep happening to him, and he is treated unfairly, that doesn't change who he is or his trust in God. Now, I call these events in Joseph's life, bad things. But we will now see how all things work together for good to them that
0: love God, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Well, let's go on then to Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 4 set the stage. In verse 1, And it came to pass, after these things, that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt, And Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them and they continued a season in ward.
1: Once again, okay, Joseph, you're in charge. Here's these prisoners. Make sure that they stay in here.
0: Right. I know. That's so great.
1: So one day the baker and the butler were looking sad, and Joseph noticed and asked them what was wrong. In verse 8, And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. Now in verses 9 through 12, the butler explains that in his dream there were three branches of a vine that produced grapes, He took ripe grapes from the vine and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and gave it to him. Joseph offers this interpretation. In verse 13, Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place, and thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou wast his butler. But think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me. And make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon.
0: So in verses 16 to 17, the baker tells his dream. He says that in his dream there were three baskets on his head with food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it. Joseph gives the interpretation in verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee, and shall hang thee on a tree, and the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. In three days all things happened just as Joseph had interpreted, in verse twenty-three. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him.
1: Butler, you had one job. <laughs> One request, just a simple request, but he forgot. That brings us to chapter 41. So before we start, how long was Joseph in prison then? The Institute Manual gives us this insight. Joseph was in prison for two years after he interpreted the dreams of the chief butler and baker. He was sold into slavery when he was about 17, and he was 30 years of age when he became vice-regent to the Pharaoh. Altogether. together, He served 13 years with Potiphar and in prison. The record does not tell how long he served Potiphar before his imprisonment, but that he worked his way up to be the overseer of the prison implies some period of time before the butler and baker joined him. So it is likely that Joseph was in prison at least three years and possibly much longer. So in the first seven verses of chapter 41, This is now two years after the butler and baker left the prison. Now Pharaoh has some troubling dreams.
0: Let's take a look in verse 8 of chapter 41. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do "'Do remember my faults this day. "'Pharaoh was wroth with his servants "'and put me in ward in the captain of the guard's house, "'both me and the chief baker. "'And we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he. "'We dreamed each man according to the interpretation "'of his dream, and there was there with us "'a young man, an Hebrew, servant to the captain of the guard, "'and we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams, "'to each man according to his dream he did interpret.' And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored unto mine office, and him he hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment, and came in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee, that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, In my dream, behold, I stood upon the bank of the river, and behold, there came up out of the river seven kine, this is cows, fat-fleshed and well-favored, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other kine came up after them, poor and very ill-favored and lean-fleshed, such as I never saw in all the land of Egypt for badness. And the lean and the ill-favored kind did eat up the first seven fat kind. And when they had eaten them up, it could not be known that they had eaten them, but they were still ill-favored as at the beginning. So I awoke, and I saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good and behold seven ears withered thin and blasted with the east wind sprung up after them and the thin ears devoured the seven good ears and i told this unto the magicians but there was none that could declare it to me notice the pattern we've talked about before about the vision in pairs this means god will carry out the vision or the dream soon as it references in verse 32
1: Back to the chapter in verse 25, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. And he goes on to reveal that there will be seven years of plenty in the land and then seven years of famine. The Lord is revealing this to Pharaoh so that he will prepare and store up food during the years of plenty to save his people. And Joseph closes his interpretation here in verse 33 where he says, Now therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. And so he says this so that he can get a team together that will gather all the food for those good years to come and prepare for the famine. Skipping to verse 37, And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. So once again, immediately trustworthy. One of the amazing insights into Joseph's character is, is in this exchange about, okay, so we need someone to run the show in preparing for the famine. And he doesn't suggest himself. He just says, we need someone. The Pharaoh, obviously touched not only by the inspiration, but from just the spirit emanating from Joseph, says, well, you're the guy. Yeah, You're not only the person who interpreted my dream, but you're the person in whom the spirit of God is.
0: Yeah, we've probably all met somebody like that someone who just exudes that kind of virtue through their righteous actions and through the spirit of God that's in them.
1: And then in verse 45, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-paaneah, and he gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On,
0: An. and Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. So just a quick note on the names again. Remember what we talked about? Don't be worried about these big names. However you pronounce it, it's going to be fine, but as a rule, you may want to, if there's multiple vowels, go ahead and pronounce both sounds. So, for example, zafnath, no problem. But paania, you're essentially looking at two different A sounds, pa and A. So, paania. But if you say pania, I mean, that's fine too. Just don't let these things intimidate you. Have fun with them. Whether it's potifera, or Patifera, however you pronounce them. Don't be scared. Have fun with the names.
1: And it kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Zaphnath Panea?
0: Oh, it does. I love it. Zaphnath Panea.
1: They call him Zafi for short, although.
0: That's right.
1: According to verses 32, 38, and 39, what did Pharaoh discover about the source of his dreams? There's a great quote that's included in the Come, Follow Me manual from Elder David A. Bednar from the April 2011 General Conference, where he says, quote, Revelations are conveyed in a variety of ways, including, for example, dreams, visions, conversations with heavenly messengers, and inspiration,
0: end quote. Wonderful. In Genesis chapter 41, verses 46 to 52, it tells us that for seven years, Joseph went throughout all of Egypt, gathering food until there was more grain in storage than could be measured. During this time, Joseph and Asenath had two sons, verses 51 and 52, you might recognize these names, Manasseh and Ephraim. It is puzzling that for all the care that has been taken to marry a woman who will carry on the Abrahamic covenant, that Joseph would marry the daughter of a pagan priest. If you're interested in another extra-biblical writing, it's called Joseph and Asenath, and it was a very early Jewish book, beloved by early Christians, too. It contains their love story. I actually think it's quite romantic, but it also tells of Asenath's conversion to the worship of Joseph's God. This was considered a very important book in early Christianity and was included in the Armenian canon of the Old Testament. We'll include a link if you're interested in learning more about the book of Joseph and Azenath. It's also fun to read and there are various manuscript versions, but we will link to one English translation in the description. To summarize, the story takes place when Joseph is second only to Pharaoh, but for Asenath, she will have nothing to do with men. She was born born to privilege and beauty with a house of maidservants and considered herself far above the men she knew. She did not speak kindly of them or of Joseph. When Joseph visited her father one day, it says this, Asenath saw Joseph, and she was cut to the quick. Her stomach turned over, her knees became limp, and her whole body trembled. And she was much afraid and cried out and said, "'Where shall I go?' And where can I hide myself from him? And how will Joseph, the son of God, regard me? For I have spoken evil of him. Where can I flee and hide myself? For he sees everything and no secret is safe with him because of the great light that is in him. I really like this because I find it very authentic. She thought she was so great, but in the light of someone who is filled with God's light, she realizes all of her shortcomings, and I guess she realizes too what her potential really could be. So Joseph and Azenath meet and have a short exchange, and while you read you can feel the power of Joseph's convictions. Asenath feels it too, and between the time Joseph leaves and visits again, she will have gone through a powerful conversion, trying to deal with what she felt. She is humbled and unmade before God much like Lamoni and his father in the Book of Mormon. The story can seem strange at parts, but much of it feels very authentic to spiritual conversion as I know it. An angel, or man from heaven, visits her later, and when the angel says he must go because he's going to go visit Joseph and tell him about her, she asks, quote, There are, my lord, seven virgins with me, who have been brought up with me and who wait upon me. They were born in the same night as I was, and I love them. Let me call them so that you can bless them as you have blessed me. (laughs) I've always wanted someone to say that. I've always wanted someone who is visited by an angel to ask him to wait a minute so they can get their friends and have that experience with them too. But it also shows where her heart is. She's thinking of others now. And you see that throughout her conversion experience. Anyway, I thought you might enjoy reading it.
1: Now, there are other early Jewish traditions that suggest that Asenath was Dinah's daughter by Shechem. One says, quote, Jacob himself placed the infant Asenath near the wall of Egypt on the same day that Potiphar was taking a walk. Now, here, actually, they're referring to Potiphar. In some translations, it's Potiphar, but it's not the same person who bought Joseph as a slave. This is Potiphar, priest of On. So, on the same day, Potiphar was taking a walk, accompanied by his retinue, and approached the wall. He heard the child weeping and commanded his followers to bring it to him. When he noticed the tablet around her neck, engraved with the words, Holy to God, and read the inscription, he said to his followers, This child is the daughter of eminent people. Carry it into my house and procure a nurse for it. Many years later, when Joseph had saved Egypt from famine and made a progress through the land, women threw him thank offerings. Among them was Asenath, who, having no other gift, tossed Joseph her silver disc, which he caught as it flew by. He recognized the inscription, and knowing that she must be his own niece, married her. That's from an article called Asenath the Wife of Joseph from Hebrew Union College Annual in 1924. So the famine came just as the Lord had shown Pharaoh. And as it says in Genesis chapter 41, verse 57, and all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all the lands. Remember that in the King's English, corn means any kind of grain.
0: Right. Well, my goodness, what lessons today and what experiences. This story will continue into next week as we find out what will happen to Joseph's family, his brothers, his father, and we'll cover that story in the coming chapters.
1: We studied a lot today. There's a lot to consider and to ponder, a lot of great lessons. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about Joseph in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints,
0: but we're really big fans.